0: My Tonight after the evening service, there will be a very short members meeting. Uh, we have a couple folks who have come to us for church membership and uh, interviewed them last week, and Roger and Kathy Kellett are, are uh, being recommended by myself and the deacons for, for membership, and so we'll vote on that uh, right after the evening service um, this evening and look forward to that. Micah chapter 7 verses 18 through 20 this morning. John Newton, you know, probably know the story of how he came to Christ and he wrote Amazing Grace, it's really the, the anthem of his life. Uh, he became an Anglican preacher after he uh, came to the Lord Jesus and uh, was, was uh, friends with William Wilberforce, who you might know uh, helped to end slavery in England. But John Newton, he continued his ministry into an old, old age. And um, he had friends who said, you need to retire, John. You're just getting too old. And he turned a deaf ear to those, to those friends. And by the time he reached 80, still ministering the word of God, he was almost blind and he was partially deaf. And uh, as his friends were pressuring him to say, John, just need to, you need to retire here. He said, I cannot stop. What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? But in December 1806, the end was coming and John uh, Newton kept the record uh, of his, uh, of his, uh, his devotional life and the events that went on in his life. And his diary recorded his prayer asking God to help him meet his end with a faithful spirit. And I want you to listen to what John Newton wrote. Oh, for grace to meet the approach of death with a humble, thankful, resigned spirit becoming my profession. That I may not stain my character by impatience, jealousy, or any hateful temper, but may be prepared and permitted to depart in peace and hope, and be enabled, if I can speak, to bear my testimony to, the, to Thy faithfulness and goodness with my last breath. Amen. And it's a prayer I certainly would like to make my own, and perhaps yours as well. And John Newton's friend uh, wrote this about John Newton. near the end of his life, he said, I saw Mr. Newton near the closing scene. He was hardly able to talk. And all I find, I noted down upon my leaving him, was thus, quote, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. He never forgot. He owed his redemption from a life of sin and Christ totally to God's mercy. In fact, he wrote his own epitaph on his gravestone and and uh, It's at St. Mary Woolworth in, in England, and he wrote this. Once an infidel and libertine, meaning far from God and was going crazy after sin. A servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, and pardoned. And appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. I ask a question this morning What drove John Newton? What empowered him his whole life? What changed John Newton from a rebel, and quote from the words of Amazing Grace, a wretch like him, blinded to God, lost to having his eyes open to being found? Being made a saint, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What did that? I think our text in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, helps answer that question this morning. Man's deepest question, if he is absolutely honest, is how can sinful man be right with God? Now we have all kinds of felt needs that we think are our greatest need, but that is our greatest need. And sin is always against God because the root of sin is to be against God. The person who is against God, which the Bible says is all mankind born into this world, cannot be right with God. You cannot be against God and right with God in the same moment. And God's perfections, His holiness, cannot be indifferent toward what is contrary to His holy nature. And the Bible says, the arm of His love, that preserves His love, called wrath, anger, is poised against man's sin. And that, folks, whether people want to stuff it into the closet, whether folks want to ignore it, is what is true about man's relationship and situation with God apart from Christ. So how can man be right with Him? Man cannot be right with Him. Mankind is all wrong with Him. Because God has said, all are sinners and come short of His radiant glory. And man ignores this weight of this heavy truth as man runs from God. There's nothing man can do to change that. Man is deadened to the profound sense of the most serious reality in the universe. That he is an enemy of the God who is majestic in the beauty of His holiness. It is upon the background of this truth in this text here that the uniqueness of our God becomes clear because God changes that. The question that arises in our minds is how can everything that is true about man's relationship with God as rebels against Him and the curse upon mankind for that rebellion be reversed as this passage in verses 18 to 20 seems to say that it is. And that's what we need to see this morning as we discover why Micah says, who is like our God? That very question was not a question that was new in that ancient world. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians all talked about how their gods were incomparable. But what Micah is saying in verses 18-20 through is that Yahweh's incomparability is because He is the only one He is the one and only one who is able to forgive sinners because he willingly stepped into history as the God-man and intervened and worked the miracle that only he, the redeeming God, can do. And he will faithfully keep his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his ability to... To forgive. Now how does he do this? Let's look in the text. Verse 18. Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like unto thee. That pardoneth iniquity. And passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth in mercy. I want you to see that what makes our God unique. Is that God is a God of forgiving love. He is a God of forgiving love. You see, God is a God who is eternally loved. He's eternally been giving Himself to others. Etern- the Father has eternally been giving His love to the Son. The Son has eternally been giving His love to the Father, etc. It has always and forever been God's nature to bring blessing and good for others. He is a fountain, and what purpose does a fountain exist for, but to shower those in His presence? And God is a God of love. But notice, this verse says that He is the God who pardons iniquity, so there is a forgiving love. God the Father never had to forgive the Son in eternity past. The Son never had to forgive the Father for an unkind word. He takes away the guilt from someone. That's the idea here. A God who pardons iniquity. He forgives totally. Pardoned totally. The act of sin and its consequences, its punishment. Forgiven. Totally. Removed. The verse says, he passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He uses a few words for sin, you might notice here. He's used uh, iniquity. Now he's using transgression. That word transgression, it refers to the, to the fracture of a relationship. Fracture of relationship. Perhaps you can think in your families uh, 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 of, of, of a moment where a relationship was fractured because of a sin. He, he passes over the transgressions of His remnant. You see, Israel had made a covenant with God on Mount Sinai that it, they had poised themselves to do as God had said. And if God ruled over them, He would take care of them. But Israel had broken their vow. They had not filled their part. They had transgressed the terms of the covenant. But the Bible says here in verse 18 that He will pass over their transgression. The transgression of who? The verse says of the remnant of his heritage, of his inheritance, the remnant, the remnant of Israel were the ones who had repented, were walking with him. And that's key His passing over. His mercy was given to the remnant. The remnant were the repentant Israelites. He will not hold to his anger. The last part of the verse says forever because he delighteth in mercy. He is the God of forgiving love, a forgiving love. And Micah doesn't tell us how this happens and how this works out and how this is true. He tells us this is how our God is like, what is like. We're going to unpack why this is true. The second thing we need to see here is verse 19, which says he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and now will cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. The second thing I'd like you to see this morning is that our God is who He is because He is the God of redeeming power. He's the God of redeeming power. How can the holy, majestic, pure God who the Bible says does not wink at sin, who deals with sin justly, forgive? And the answer is because... Of his powerful redemption. And what is the language and words that are used in this verse are a, a, a flashback to Israel's history um, in the Red Sea. Notice what it says. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will so do our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. Micah is borrowing language from Moses. In Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses, as Moses uh, rejoices in God's deliverance of the Red Sea and he bursts out in the praise, he says things in Exodus 15 that Micah is picking back up on. An Israelite would have been familiar with it, would have brought back uh, memories of what what, uh, God had said through Moses in the song of praise. And I'd like you to turn uh, for a couple minutes to Exodus chapter 15 to see these connections. Exodus 14 is the story of how God miraculously delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh as he chased after them, changed his mind, pursued them to the Red Sea, and now they were stuck, uh, the the Egyptian army behind them, uh, uh, the Red Sea in front of them, uh, um, two million plus people, uh, where are they going to go? And God delivers them, he splits the sea as you know, and uh, the, the Israelites are able to walk through in dry land. He puts a cloud between them and the, and the uh, Egyptians. And so the Egyptians cannot pursue them. After the Israelites go through, that cloud moves. And the Egyptians go and follow the same pathway. And the waters crush them. And Moses sings a song in chapter 15. And I want you I'm going to read it. It's extended, but I want you to listen to some of the themes, some of the verses that are that, that verse verse 19 that is up on the screen. See if you can pick it up. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel in this song unto the Lord and spake saying, I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will repair him in habitation. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Various chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captives also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of Thine excellency, Thou hast overthrown them that rose up against Thee, which settest forth Thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of Thine nostrils, the waters were gathered together, the floods stood upright as in heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength, unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold in the inhabitants of Palestine. Etc. Do you get the picture there? God, in, in Micah chapter 7, will have compassion. It's the idea of mercy. Uh, He will have mercy. uh, And 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 it's the idea of mercy from the one who is the victor to the defeated. So the one who is conquered to the people he has conquered, to what he has conquered, he will have mercy, compassion. Israel's only hope for mercy and compassion was if God, their victor, would triumphantly vanquish, subdue, trample underfoot, israel's greatest enemy and you know who israel's greatest enemy was it was not Babylon, it was not assyria it was not the egyptians israel's greatest enemy was their sin and their guilt and the bible says he will hurl it into the depths of the sea just like he did to their enemies the egyptians you know our own sin is what defeats us we can blame a whole host of things for our behavior We can blame the the way we were raised. We can uh, uh, blame our our financial situations. Uh, We can blame the other person for how they they deal with us. But when it all comes down to it, if we're honest, it is our own sin that that defeats us. The Bible says the wages, the payment, the consequence of sin is death. And in this text here, the I am Jehovah, He moved to hurl Israel's iniquities and guilt and sins. Notice that it says here in verse 19, "Thou wilt cast what? All their sins into the depths of the sea, just as decisively, as perfectly, as comprehensively as he had to Pharaoh and the Egyptian enemies." And God uses that picture of what He had done to Israel's enemies at the Red Sea in His deliverance to show her what He would do to their deepest enemy, their own sin. You know the Old Testament tells us how God would do that? If you go with me to Isaiah chapter 53, it tells how God would deal with Israel's sin. How will you provide pardon? How will you provide mercy? And the answer is through a promised Messiah's provision. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne. I want you to see this idea of carrying upon himself. Of bearing something that was not his own. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now go down to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering, two key words, for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul. The father will see the son's travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, by the knowledge of him, shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great? Here is Christ's reward. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Back in Micah, the Messiah would make this possible. He would die in their place. He would pay in full the penalty for sin. On the cross, He would satisfy the righteous demands of the covenant, the law. All Israel's righteousnesses, in Micah 6, verse 6 and 7, all those, though done extravagantly, but out of a heart that had not humbled themselves were a pile of filthy rags, obscene to God. But that Messiah's pure act His pure righteousness 700 years later would totally satisfy the Holy God. He's the God of redeeming power. But look in verse 20. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which thou hast sworn from our fathers from the days of old. You see, our God is unique because of His unending faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. His unending faithfulness. Micah anchors these previous points. His forgiving love, his redeeming power, and God's unending faithfulness to his promises. And the bedrock of two things is mercy and truth. That word uh, translated mercy uh, and truth together uh, literally mean kindness and faithfulness. Kindness and faithfulness. Do you remember the promise that God made to, to bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? The oath that God solemnly swore to make those men's descendants as numerous as what? The stars in the sky, the sands on the seashore, and he would bless all the nations through them? Now, could Abraham and Isaac and Jacob accomplish that vast promise through their own efforts? No. And by the time Micah writes this, they have been long dead. You see, it was the faithfulness and kindness of God who would deliver his promise to Israel. He is true, folks. He is faithful. And Israel could rely on his words and his acts even in their darkest times. His mercy or kindness, as it means here, is understood to be his great kindness. His great kindness. And it is great kindness because the God who is majestic in his holiness has lavished out in buckets kindness to undeserving sinners. And that remnant of Israel who he's talking about here, that repentant Israel, would see the faithful, kind promises of God. He cannot lie. He will keep His oath, His covenant, His promise. He swore He would do it, and He would deliver that through His new covenant in the person of His one and only Son. That was Israel's story. You're saying, well, I'm not Israel. What's the connection with me? I'd like you to turn to see how Paul connects these truths in Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Paul has spent um, the first three chapters basically saying that all have sinned and all are guilty. He says in Romans 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. No excuses, Paul says. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified, declared righteous by the law in his sight. For by the law is a knowledge of sin. And then there's a conjunction there, a hinge that changes things. It says, "But now, but now, but now what? But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested." It is made plain, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Messiah Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, to satisfy the demands of His wrath, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. And Paul says, there's no way you can brag about that. You doing any part of that. See, there is not a righteousness that would be available to Israel that would be obtained through keeping the law, but a righteousness from God, not our own. Theologians call this an alien righteousness. It's outside of us. And how is it obtained? Through faith. It is a sentence of God that has been declared to the guilty party that upon faith and His work, they are considered righteous. This is called the doctrine of justification and it's what our our sanctification flows out of uh, and it means that upon repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ, God sees us solely totally and only through the lens of the beauty of His perfect Son and He considers us in His record books as if we have never sinned just like His Son, because He sees us through His Son. And as though we have always obeyed Him, just as His Son is always. That's justification. And I don't deserve that. And that's mercy. That's pardon. That's <sighs> compassion. There are five things, quick things, that this passage teaches us about this precious truth of being declared righteous being pardoned first of all I'd like you to notice in this passage in verse 21 that it is rooted in the Old Testament Paul didn't hatch this up he's saying it is witnessed to you by the Old Testament and we look back on a passage like Micah 7:18 to 20 and say "Hmm, that's how it's possible That's how God would pardon. That's how we would forgive. Through the Messiah that would come. The second thing I'd like you to see in verse 22 is that it is transferred by faith. It's a free gift of God, received by faith. Not by the works of the law. not, Not earning it, but received freely. By genuine belief. Thirdly, Your eternal destiny hangs on this. In other words, justification is absolutely necessary. You being declared righteous is absolutely necessary for you to live with the Lord and not eternity in hell. It's absolutely necessary for any hope. We are in desperate need of this, in other words. Verses 22 and 23 tell us that we fall short of the glory of God. The idea of, of we fall short of the glory of God is in the present tense, and it means that we continually fall short of the glory of God by imperfectly doing as well, By turning against Him. This truth is absolutely necessary. You must be forgiven, pardoned, declared righteous by God if you will have any hope. But we know that our God is just. He doesn't just take sin and, and say, okay, I'm just going to forget about that. Um, he doesn't just sweep under the rug. He always has to deal with sin because He is holy. And He has. And He put all, the worst of you on the best that he had to offer his son Jesus paid your fine Jesus paid it all Jesus paid it in full the basis of justification is quite simply the work of Jesus Christ it's the grounds verse 24 He uses a couple words redemption uh, <clears throat> uh, propitiation Redemption uh, in that day and age would, would be like you, a uh, master, showing up to the slave auction and buying a slave and then giving him his freedom through the payment of a ransom. You no, know, Peter says we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That was the price that was paid. The word propitiation there in verse twenty-five uh, means to turn away to turn aside God's wrath and take away sin. And this is how the, the rich holy God showed his love toward us. Christ stepped in. He bore the wrath of God on him and presented himself in our place. And illustrate it like this uh, many years ago. A father and daughter were walking through the grass in the Canada, and the Canadian prairie, and in the distance they saw a prairie fire, and they realized that the way the wind was blowing, it would soon catch up, them. they could not run it, it would engulf them. The father knew that there was, however, only one way of escape. They would begin a fire right where they were and burn a large patch of grass, and when the huge fire from the prairie fire drew near, they would stand on the section that had already been burned. The flames approached, and the girl was terrified, but the father told her, The flames can't get to us. We're standing where the fire has already been. As a believer, you are standing where the fire has already been in Christ. That's justification. story of Martin Luther in a dream. He found himself uh, in a dream being attacked by Satan and the devil had a long scroll in his dream uh, containing a list of Luther's sins and he's holding it before him, the great slanderer, the accuser. And he finally got to the end of the scroll. And Luther in his dream asked the devil is that all? No. gave him the reply. Second scroll in front of him. Then after second, a third Luther said, you've forgotten something. Quickly write on each of those scrolls, across the top of the scroll, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. It's mercy of God. It's the mercy of God. Napoleon was on his rampage in France, seized great power. There was a man, an individual, who had committed crimes against Napoleon, and his mother came and approached Napoleon, seeking a pardon for her son. The man had a committed offense twice, a certain offense, and the justice and laws of that land demanded death. And that's how Napoleon replied to her. The mom said, But I'm not asking for justice. I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, she said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I can ask for. Well then, he said, I will have mercy. He spared the woman's son. God's mercy is declaring us righteous. Standing us where the fire has already burned and seeing us as he sees his son. There's one more thing I want you to see about this passage here. This justification is not at the expense of God's justice. This declaration of righteousness, again, is not him just sweeping things under the rock here. He satisfied the demands fully. He justly justifies the sinner. Verse 26. Because Christ paid it in full. Verse 25 says, For the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, He paid it in full. Jesus. So that a person like Paul who writes these things seems to have a great understanding of it could say something like this in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9. He could say, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but at loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith that's what he is trusting in I wonder we understand the doctrine of justification and God's promises in Micah there to to cleanse, to pardon, to forgive, to put their sins in the depths of the sea, if perhaps you have repented and confessed a certain sin, and, and, but you're still living in his guilt. And perhaps you, like Martin Luther's dream, have, that, have the devil presenting that to you again and again. Keep going back to it in your mind. And you know you're forgiven, but you can't believe that you're really forgiven. And you're making yourself a slave to something that's been cast into the depths of the sea. Stories told of a little boy who was visiting his grandparents and he got his first slingshot. He was practicing in the woods, but he could never hit his target. He came back to grandma's backyard after on, being unsuccessful in the woods and he saw grandma's pet duck. And he took aim and let fly on an impulse and it hit the duck. And the duck went to duck heaven. The boy panicked, and he t- took the duck, and he hid it in the woodpile. And as he was hiding in the woodpile, he looked up, and there was his sister watching. She had seen it all, but she said nothing. The next day, Grandma said, Hey, Sally, let's wash the dishes. And Sally said, Johnny told me that he wanted to help in the kitchen today, didn't you, Johnny? And she whispered to him, Remember the duck? so Johnny did the dishes grandpa asked the children wanted to go fishing later on and grandma grandma said I'm sorry I need Sally to help me with the supper and Sally smiled and said that's all taken care of Johnny wants to do it and she whispered remember the duck and Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing Several days of this, doing his chores, and Sally's Johnny couldn't stand it anymore, and he went to Graham and confessed that he'd killed the duck, and she said, "I know, Johnny, I was standing at the window. I saw the whole thing, but I forgave you. I wondered how long you you'd let Sally make a slave of you. You know what the devil whispers in your ear. Remember that? If you haven't repented of it, that's not the devil, that's the Holy Spirit." But if you repented of it, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is the devil. And he's making a slave out of you, but justification has redeemed you. You're free. You're declared righteous. One writer says he was growing up with his younger brother and sister, and one of their favorite things was to play baseball. You know, plastic bat and ball, and they'd play with the neighborhood kids, and his mom took his bat away from them because they were arguing, like brothers and sisters tend to do, but that didn't stop them from playing their favorite game. <clears throat> she took the bat, but she didn't take the ball. And so they made do, they took the metal brace from the swing set, braced brace the two legs on the swing set, and they started using that as the bat. And he said he was at bat, and he swung a pitch, and he felt two distinct points of contact. One was with the ball, and the second was with his sister's head and he didn't realize she had walked up behind him and on the follow through he clobbered her on the forehead with the end of the brace. He turned around of course to hear his sister screaming and bleeding and he knew he was in trouble so while his sister bled and cried he said don't tell mom. He's just pleading with her not to tell mom. He figured that washing her down with a water hose would get rid of the blood and take care of the situation and once the bleeding stopped he'd be in the clear but he couldn't really discover, uh, trying to get away from his whipping, he discovered that the greater need was that his sister needed medical attention, not that to cover her sin. She eventually had to be taken to the emergency room, and they, of course, gave her stitches. And um, his point of the story was this. When his mom came out after hearing the crying, he was worried about... Uh, how, how guilty he was for disobeying her with a with a bat, and and um, and uh, his mom trying to find out every detail of what happened, but his mom saw it this way: she was going to deal with the need. She saw the blood. She carried the sister up in her arms in the house, drove her to the hospital to get the medical attention she needed. The boy says that day, I never got the whipping that I that it deserved. He said, my mom's actions showed that her concern for my sister's health and well-being was more important than trying to blame somebody for the accident that caused her injuries or punishing the ones who were responsible. And I wonder, in a a more indirect application here um, from our passage this morning, if because of the great grace that we've been shown, can we show that great grace to others? See, Paul says in Ephesians 4.32 he says to be kind one to another and forgive one another and then he bases it in the gospel even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you he has wiped you clean he has pardoned and Paul says on that basis you can be kind and forgive others that might seem like a shallow thing but that's that's real. That's hard. That's the issues of life. You see, our obligation is, is certainly to warn people of sin and its consequences and to confront that sin when it's there. But we also, because of what Christ has done for us, is to bind the wounds of our brothers and sisters in Christ who've been victimized by the enemy, who've been attacked. To tell those who have never known the washing of regeneration that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay their sin debt. That His blood can wash away all your sins. That He rose from the dead to prove His power over death. And how in the grave. And how many of us have been guilty of, of shooting our wounded. How many have kicked somebody when they were down rather than bearing their burden? Church is a refuge. It's a safe haven. It's a place of restoration. It should never become a place of ridicule or torment. The Bible says to consider, them, to consider yourselves, lest you also be tempted. And perhaps I'm speaking this morning to people who have been through the ringer in your battle this week with sin. You are battered, you are bloody. There have been near lethal blows that Satan has inflicted upon you. You need medical attention, and it's the kind of medical attention that only Jesus Christ can give. I want to tell you the truth of what we saw this morning is the balm, it's the medicine for your soul. And Jesus Christ stands with outstretched arms to receive those who come to Him for that. Be washed. In the waters of God's mercy and grace. You need to be washed. To clean your feet. You need to come to Jesus. Confessing your sins. Experience His forgiveness. Total forgiveness and cleansing. Being restored in fellowship. Being renewed with Him. Maybe you're one of these people who if you've tried to wash your own feet you turned over leaf after leaf only to find the same old dirty sin on the other side. You've attended church perhaps even, been baptized, maybe in a member here, But if you're really honest, you have never trusted in Christ's work that we're speaking of this morning. You don't receive pardon, forgiveness. Hell is the eternal destination come trusting in nothing else but Jesus Christ to cleanse you of all your sins. It's to be like that mom ready to scoop you up. You can't do anything to earn His favor. You can't bring anything with you but your sin that you've committed in a broken and contrite heart. You can't get better to come to Him. You can only ask for mercy and pardon. You can only come to Jesus Christ in absolute unworthiness to ask Him for His free gift of salvation. So the invitation is twofold this morning. If you don't know this God who is unlike anyone else, you need to come to Him today. And, believer, if you've forgotten what you've been purged from, you need to reflect deeply on that. And you need to make sure that those sins in your life creeping up have been confessed and put under the blood as He promises they have. The song, O Worship the King, says in verse 4 and 5, Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, and you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. O measureless might, unchangeable love, whom angels delight to worship above, your ransomed creation with glory ablaze, and true adoration shall sing to your praise. I ask you again, who is like our God? Let's pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed this morning. I wonder if there's someone here who can come in and say, Lord spoken to me, I don't know the Lord Jesus today I want that righteousness that He offers through His Son. I know there's nothing I can do to earn it, but to receive it as a free gift. And I'm taking Jesus' life on my behalf and giving Him my sin. If there's anyone here like that this morning, I wonder if you would lift your hand. Believers, Are you walking in fellowship with the Lord? Are you growing in holiness because of your position in the Lord? Do you understand what He did in the Gospel for us? Do you rejoice that you are pardoned? Lord Jesus, make us more like You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Went a little long. I want to close this morning here with will worship the king. You'll have the number in front of me again. 65. So if you stand and you turn your hymn books, you can. We're going to sing verse 4 and verse 5. Frail children of dust. Number 65. I'll worship the king.